I thought I'd start with a couple of questions from the board first. Hmm. So the first um, I'll I'll talk about is um, a question around working with fear. And the question is um, about do we use the same tools essentially um, or do we use some of the same tools in working with fear as other other practices we've been taught or do we just simply um, recognize that we're aware and what we're aware of and, and notice the attitude of mind as we're working with fear? And I think the answer depends. <laughs> um, if it's possible, and I'd say this is probably true with um, many of the of our difficulties in working with difficult states of mind, uh, not just with fear, but with um, any of our difficult states of mind, if we can be mindful, be aware of the state of mind, if we're not pulled into it by, you know, the, the, the sucked into the rabbit hole, as I've sometimes said, or we find that, um, you know, we, we can be aware of it for just a little while and then we get continually like pulled pulled back into the stream of thoughts over and over again and then okay a few few moments of awareness and back in the thought a few moments of awareness back in the thought if you find you're in that kind of a a pattern around especially if there's a lot of thought around an emotion um you know there it can be helpful to use some of the other tools that we are familiar with consciously turning to the body um, letting go of the thoughts and coming into the impact that the uh, emotion has on the body. Um, so it really is uh, using discernment. I think a lot of times with this technique of the sim- the simplicity of this technique of just am I aware, what am I aware of, check the attitude. That's kind of our... our uh, what we could say our default practice is or what we, we um, see. Can we do that? Can we meet experience with that kind of simplicity? And sometimes we can't. Sometimes just bringing that kind of simple awareness, the, the mindfulness isn't quite strong enough, isn't quite powerful enough to meet that experience. The momentum of the fear of the whatever it is, the momentum of that state overwhelms our capacity to be mindful. And so we uh, use discernment in that case and we, you know, we, we use what works for us. Find the tools, the techniques that work for us. Saira Uteshaniya has a particular set of tools that he's used that, he, that I've learned from him, and I found some of those useful above and beyond the ones that I've, I learned with uh, you know, the Mahasi technique or other um, 
techniques that I've been taught. Um, actually, the main technique with the Mahasi technique is note it. <laughs> Just note it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the tools that I've learned from my Western teachers have been immensely helpful. And then some of the ones that Utejaniya has taught, such as ask, ask it questions, you know, as a way of directing the investigation instead of, uh, or as a way of inclining the investigation, I'll say, as a way of inclining the investigation, ask the, ask the mind questions about the difficulty and see how the mind responds to that orientation of those questions as opposed to saying, okay, here's fear, let me turn attention to the body. Let me direct the attention. That was the, those are the tools, the tools of directing attention to particular areas were the main ones I learned in my other, other techniques. And they're immensely helpful, and sometimes that's, you know, that's um, a very uh, helpful way to go when we're having a difficulty. Um, so the, the questions that Sayadaw asks is kind of almost an in-between. It's not just settle back and notice what you're aware of, what's obvious. It's directing the attention by asking questions such as, how does this state of mind impact the body? Which is a less um, directive approach to that turn towards the body. You know, it's, it's the similar kind of inclination of mind, but it's not yanking the mind around or saying, okay, pay attention to this. It's, it's, it's basically saying, hmm, are you willing to notice what's happening in the body, mind? Are you willing to do that? <laughs> what do you notice if in, the bod- in, the, in the body around this? So it's a, it's a less uh, directed approach. Other questions, you know, what purpose is this fear serving? Um, that can sometimes get to some things underneath um, that might not be so obvious uh, just by noticing I'm aware and what's what's clear in awareness. Sometimes the questions can reveal things that are not uh, not so obvious. And then the other set of tools Saito Tejaniya suggests bringing in around difficulty are using wisdom reflections. Again, you know, dropping in. He, he uses a lot of, of skillful thought in the way he's worked in his practice, and so those are the tools he suggests. So bringing in wisdom, you know, okay, here's fear. You know, noticing fear. This is impermanent. This is dukkha. This is not me. This is not mine not who I am. So we can use these tools um, and others. We, we may choose to um, broaden the container, you know, recognize, yeah, there's a lot happening here. It's not just the fear. There's a lot happening here. We may choose to let it set, a, set it aside altogether for a while, go out into nature or uh, turn our attention to something else. So there's a lot of tools we can use. And um, when the mind is struggling with something, use what works. Use what works for you.
Let's see. Um, the other day, I talked about um, I think it was in the morning when I was talking about unfamiliar states of mind. Um, I talked about a, um, a a time when I was seeing experience and it felt like things were broken all into little bits. Um, and somebody asked me, what was that? Can you say more about that, basically? Um, so I don't know that I actually know what it was I know it was dukkha um, I mean what what, what I, rea- I truly know about it is that it was dukkha it was an unpleasant experience and that my attitude about it was fascination <laughs> I was truly fascinated with this it's like wow <laughs> That's really strange. <laughs> uh, um, but in any case, my understanding that has come um, about that kind of phenomenon, because I've seen that kind of phenomenon um, some several times in my practice, um, is that it it first of all, it's a perception. It's a it's a way of taking in experience, so it's, it's perceptual in nature, um, and that my understanding of it is that in some ways it is reflective of the true nature of experience in that um, what, what happens for us or what what seems to happen in uh, our minds is that we take in little tiny packets of information, little tiny blips of sight, little tiny blips of sound, and then put it together through concept, through memory, through this persistence of um, the sense bases holding or remembering this blip happened, that blip happened, that blip happened, kind of in a quick sequence. The mind, the, the, the mind puts together uh, experience. Um, that the mind was kind of seeing down into that level of experience. That's, that was m- part of my understanding. That, you, know, you know how um, on your television screen, sometimes if the, if the picture goes, it's just, uh, pixelated, that's the word, it's pixelated. Well, the, the, the screen is always pixelated, but a particular configuration of things, and we create the images and see the images. So mm, my understanding of that experience is that the mindfulness had gotten continuous to touch into the pixelated nature of experience that's 
um, part of how our sense bases work, taking these little blips of information. And the, the, the analogy I gave about the, um, uh, or the, the example I gave about the, um, the Exploratorium exhibit, I think really points out how the mind does this. I mean, that, that exhibit of those, those individual bars spaced so far apart, the mind was clearly, very clearly only getting little blips of information. Very clear. This, this, that's, I think that's what the power of this exhibit was. It showed just how much the mind can construct when it gets just little tiny blips of information. And so that, that shows just, kind of that, to me that exhibit kind of points out how the sense bases and the mind and concepts, consciousness kind of puts it all together so it seems smooth out there. So that's my understanding of that, of what that experience was. But it is perceptual, that seeing of it is a perception. And in fact, the Buddha talked about the insights around impermanence, unreliability, and not-self. He talked about them as perceptions. He said, cultivate the perception of impermanence. Cultivate the perception of unreliability cultivate the perception of not-self. One way it became really clear to me that this was perceptual in nature um, was, I think it was later on the same retreat, actually, that same retreat that I described that experience, experience some weeks later on that retreat. Um, I was waiting for an interview and I was sitting there in that kind of broken into bits a little experience and noticing the unpleasantness of it, noticing the dukkha of it, noticing the kind of fascination with it. Um, and then at some point, without, I think the first time this happened, it happened kind of almost accidentally, or the mind slipped into normal sense perception. So it was it was perceiving things in this broken up bits fashion, and then it suddenly, whoop, wow, sense perception is completely normal. And then it went back to broken into bits. And then I I recognized actually that through a conscious subtle inclining in the mind, the mind could choose which lens to see through. It could see through broken into bits it could see through ordinary sense perception. Now that's not something I have access to all the time by any means. I mean, it was a particular set state of consciousness in that time that was seeing things in that way and had, um, you know, had a kind of clarity of, of seeing and could, could choose, could see the impact of choice of mental formation on how I experienced things. The clarity of mindfulness seemed to be the same in both situations. And actually, since I was going into my interview, I said, well, that's really interesting, you know. Is there any benefit to hanging out in that state? And um, I went in, and and Steve Armstrong was my teacher, and I asked him, is there any benefit to that? He said, no, not particularly. (laughs) 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 Okay, well, you know, it's not a very pleasant state to hang out in. (laughs) <laughs> to some extent, that's the benefit of it. And I had certainly seen that in spades. The benefit of it is recognizing 
experience is unreliable. I mean, it, you know, in general, that, that it, it highlighted the impermanent nature of experience. And that's the benefit of it, of that kind of state. But to, to consciously stay there, if there's a choice to, to, to flip between them, as long as that conscious choice is not out of greed or aversion, it seemed pretty, pretty e- even either way. I could be this way, I could be that way. Okay, I can walk down the halls this way. That's probably a good idea. <laughs> so I'll take a question from the room now. Any any questions? Yeah. How can we know? <laughs> I would say yes. <laughs> yes to both. <laughs> um, there is a way in which, um, you know, our, our sense apparatus... I mean, I, I don't know, and this kind of blew my mind when I was a kid, you know, how do I know that my blue is the same as your blue. We don't, actually. We don't. But we all look at the sky and agree to call that blue, and so that kind of becomes our reference. (laughs) So we agree that that's blue, but we don't know that the experience is the same. But we begin, somehow our, our brains can agree on concepts to some extent. And, um... You know, thank goodness that's possible. And we see things in very different ways. And I would say that's a, you know, it's a good part of the the reason for conflict. You know, the, the, it reminds me about the, the papancha being, you know, so tied up with conflict. The, you know, there's the sense experience and perhaps the kind of bare sense experiences we basically can agree on, maybe, I mean hard to know but you know yes there's blue um both two minds sitting there can kind of agree yes that's blue um but the papancha that might arise from that you know that may maybe not a great example we may not have too much papancha about blue but um you know, the papancha that may arise from a sense experience you know uh, two people come together and, and one person says something and has a particular, you know, state of mind in that saying something and the other person experiences it from their state of mind. And the the filters, I think this really, you know, the filters that we have in place, largely which are constructed by the papancha, um, have us taking in information in different ways. One person may be, you know, speaking um, from one perspective and the other person hearing from another perspective and it's like, you're not meeting. You know, the, the realities don't, don't necessarily meet. And so there's confusion, there's uh, misunderstanding. We, we seem to think partly, I think maybe this just occurred to me, you know, we agree on certain concepts, so we agree on blue, so we have this idea, well, if we agree on blue, why can't we agree on my way is the way that, you know, everybody should see the world? 
So recognizing that that's, you know, not the case. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Arthur. tendency to th- say, this is thinking, um, that was the experience, now I'm thinking about the experience. But there's another part of the mind um, that sees that experience, sees the res- sees that, that thought, that afterthought, I'll call it, recognizes it as dukkha, recognizes that there's nothing that could be done about it. It's just suffering. The other person's suffering, my suffering, and their suffering. And um, I guess the only thing that I can describe is uh, there's a compassion that, mm. that comes with that. It's a clear recognition of this is just the way it is. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm... I'm checking and I want to be sure that there's no that I'm not deluding myself. <laughs> delusion is always possible. <laughs> you know that 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 it's very easy for delusion to come in, but um you know your description of that where there is at times just kind of what you're seeing is kind of like it's almost like you see the wave of something and then the consequences of that wave is this afterthought. And, um, you know, the, the recognition of the dukkha, you know, that and the compassion that comes with that. I mean, the, the description of that, um, to me, is showing that the mind is pretty balanced. Because when the open heart, the heart that's not filled with defilements, sees dukkha, compassion is the natural response. So... Um, you know, I always, you know, even when something like that happens, you know, I kind of, if I'm, if I'm wondering, you know, is there delusion there? You know, I, I kind of just remind myself, well, yeah, there's probably delusion there. I'm not fully enlightened in this moment. Delusion is present. <laughs> but this is the, this is, this is the clearest um, that this mind is able to see right now. So, Notice that clarity. The other day I used this example with somebody. Um, see if this makes sense. <laughs> so there's a piece of paper, you know, and there's stuff on the paper. Um, and you can kind of be focused on the, the writing on the paper, or you can be focused on the background, the color, the white color of the paper. Um, 
So even while, for instance, while something difficult is arising, um, you can recognize that it's arising within a space of some clarity. Um, And then you may begin to get hints of what it's like to experience a piece of paper without you know, writing on it. So a mind without some of those defilements, like in this case, you know, the the sense or the recognition, this is a wave coming through. This is kind of the, the tail end of a wave of dukkha and the clear knowing this is dukkha. You know, that's, it's kind of like, you know, you're seeing more purity in a way and the recognition of the compassion, you're seeing more purity. And then you might realize at some point I don't have another piece of white paper here, but um, there might be uh, another time where the um, the mind sees something with even yet more clarity, and it's like there's a brighter white out there, a, a, a purer white out there, um, and in that seeing, we recognize, oh, there was some delusion in what was happening before. But, um, you know, we can't, we can't live our lives um, kind of fearful of, is there delusion here? <laughs> you know, the delusion will be, we, we, we work with it as we can in that we recognize we have tendencies towards delusion. We have tendencies towards our own views, opinions, and those obscure truth. We have... Um, tendencies towards seeing things as permanent, reliable, me, mine, who I am. So kind of check, we can check in from from time to time. Is there something, does there feel like there's something solid in this experience? Or does there feel like there's something reliable in this experience? That's a great one to check, actually, because sometimes in deeper states of meditation, it's like, yeah, this, this is what's reliable. And then it goes away. <laughs> the state goes away. So, you know, we, Im- we impute, we tend to impute reliability. So we, you know, we see the, that the mind tends towards delusion and we explore as we can. And as I said this morning, you know, that the practice tends to create the soil out of which insight arises. And then from time to time, we see things a little more clearly. It's like, you know, we were we we thought we were seeing very clearly, and then suddenly it's like another veiled part. So it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I was doing before, but this is clarity. And then, whoo, the veil comes back, and then we've learned a little bit about that veil by its absence. We've learned a little bit about it. So, um, you know, I can't say that there's no delusion in what you're experiencing, but it sounds to me like it's heading in the direction of clarity. You know, it, it, the, 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 the way you talked about it, the just seeing its dukkha and the compassion arising, those are kind of almost pointers or um, indicators of purity. That there's not the ache of the heart. There's not the, the, the sense of, well, maybe there was the ache of the heart. Um, around that sadness, but it was known as dukkha. And so there wasn't the sense that 
this shouldn't be here. It's like, yeah, it's like this. You know, so, so those kinds of um, understandings are deepening the, the wisdom. And the wisdom cuts through the delusion. So it's a, yeah, it's not, there's not a kind of a, I mean, my understanding is that with respect to suffering, you know, delusion, we, we can kind of get broad with delusion. It's like, does delusion mean there are things I don't know? That's not what the Buddha meant by delusion. What the Buddha meant by delusion, I mean, was being uh, unaware of the the process of suffering, unaware of the cause of suffering, unaware that there's a path leading to the end of suffering, unaware of the possibility of freedom from suffering. So the, the wisdom of the Buddha is particularly around um, that, around understanding suffering and letting go of suffering. So um, that's the, those are the insights and those are the understandings that over time helped to free us. And my understanding is that, I mean, my, my faith is, I'll say my faith is, that the Buddha had a realization that completely cleared his mind of confusion and delusion around suffering. And I think it's possible. My faith is that it's possible for all of us to have that. So, so um, one thing, one piece I'll say is that in Buddhist philosophy, it is not the philosophy that we are all one. So I'll just put that out there. But there, I understand your question around karma and not self. This is actually a question that has come up for centuries. <laughs> it's actually in some of the discourses. Um, so if... Uh, there is no self, who gets reborn? <laughs> if there is no self, who's the receiver of karma? If there is no self, you know, various questions on if there is no self, then how does this all work, essentially? So I'll describe some of my understanding around this. Um, so my understanding is that there is a process, a mind-body process. So there's an Andrea mind-body process. There's a mind-body process for every one of you out there. Those processes don't, like, intermix. I mean, my thoughts, my intentions don't somehow bleed, um, and you're suddenly, 
I mean, there, there definitely are interactions between intentions and thoughts. I mean, my unfolding of my karma, if you're in the vicinity, your karma may interact with that. But, you know, we see that. We see that kind of interaction between um, people. You know, I say something, somebody uh, responds in a certain way. And, but in any case, there's this, this stream of, of unfolding process uh, for each of us kind of like a river. This is foreshadowing my talk tomorrow, but that's okay. I just won't give this example tomorrow. I'll give it now. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like a river that, um, you know, what is the river? There's, there's the water flowing through the river, but that water is never at the same moment the same water. You know, we know that, that the water is continually changing. You, you, you know, you can't take a bucket of water out of the river and say, that's the river. Um, so that's, it's a flow. The, the river is a flow. You can't point to the water that is the river. Um, well, m- what about the stream bed? Maybe the stream bed is the river. Well, even that shifts and changes. It's not completely stable. It's also a process dependent on, um, you know, the softness of the soil, um, the heaviness of the rains, uh, whether there are trees coming down the river and like um, changing the, the the boundaries of the edge of the river, whether there are plants growing on the edge of the river, all kinds of things will impact that course, and um, you know it may change. Now it may there's more stability in the riverbed than there is in the the water. And in some ways, we could say that in a life, you know, our body is kind of like the riverbed. In a way, there's more stability in our body. There's a lot more stability in our bodies than there is in our minds. Somebody, I think the Buddha, I think the Buddha actually said, somebody said, I think it was the Buddha, um, that if we were to say something is self, it would make more sense to call our body self than any a mental process because the mental processes are here and gone in a split second whereas the body actually lingers for years although now we know that largely our whole body is replaced in i think about a 7 year cycle so you know even our own bodies are changing so you know is the riverbed um the river is the water the river maybe the name of the river that's the river well no you know None of these things is actually the river. You know, when we try to say, what, is there an entity river? It's not an entity, it's a process. And much the same way, this stream of experience is a process. It's not a, there's no one thing I can point to and say, this is Andrea. There is a process, though. Uh, choices that are made in this process impact, further impact this process. Much the way, you know, the, the growth of a tree. You know, the, the, um, I will bring this in now. I, I brought it into one of the groups today. It might have even been your group. I don't remember. <laughs> um, about fractals. Um, 
Some of you may have heard of fractals. It's a, it's a mathematical form, equation, uh, graph, something like that. Um, and Tanisaro Bhikkhu puts some images of fractal equations on the covers of his books. And that one of the defining characteristics of certain kinds of fractal equations not everyone, not every equation would be this way, but certain kinds of equations. Um, if you graph that equation, make a picture out of it, then the um, image in the small, you know, if you look at, if you take a, a um, magnifying glass and look at a small piece of the image, it's the same as, it's got the same form as the large image. And the way a fractal is constructed mathematically is that you have an equation and you give, so, you give some values to go into the equation and then, you know, calculate it out and you get a result. And then, you know, in terms of the graph, you take that uh, input and output and put it on the graph. And then the next value is created by taking the output of that one, and then using that as the input of the next cycle. So this is kind of how growth works, and this is one of the things that mathematicians have found fractals to be very uh, helpful in describing, is growth, um, natural forms. So a tree, you know, has a growth process, and... Uh, that growth process, you know, it starts with just a little sprout. It's, it's basically essentially the same process that happens over and over again. It starts with this sprout, and then uh, the process works again on that sprout. So the output or the result of the process is used back again for the input of the next cycle of the process. So you get... Um, you know, this, this is a kind of a natural way that growth happens. Same thing happens in our, in our minds that, um, you know, the, the process that unfolds here, the result of our karma, you know, we, we, there's, there's some action that happens and there's a consequence. And very, light, very often, that the, the kind of way that our minds are processed, this process works, is that the consequences of that action become what our minds and bodies take up as the next thing to start with. So it's, it's just this, you know, it's just like the tree growing. It's just a natural uh, cause and effect unfolding of a process. My, the, the choices that are made in this mind-body process tend to be what's taken up and uh, by that whatever function this mind and body uses to create the next cycle. And then mindfulness can come in and perhaps vary the equation <laughs> a little bit. But in any case, there is this process happening. So my process, this process of mind and body doesn't tend to get confused with another process of mind and body. It's just that there, there, there is a process here. 
It's not that there's nothing here, but it's not what we take it to be. It's not, um, it's not a, a, a thing, an entity, something we can point to and say, this is self. Another analogy in the, um, in the canon um, is, you know, in each moment there's kind of like the arising of some phenomenon, uh, consciousness meets sense experience and something comes up. And, um, you know, every moment of experience... It's like the the energy of the previous moment informs the next moment. And then the energy of the previous moment informs the next moment and then the next moment. And so the the karma is like the the energy that informs each moment. It's 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 like um if if you had a series of candles and you start with one candle that's lit There's, there's some energy in the candle flame. But if you take that and then tip it over and light the next candle, you know, the energy transferred from one to another. So there's a continuity of process, a continuity of... It's not that they're separate. It's not that they're completely distinct. But um, they're not the same either. So there's the, the continuity of process, but not um, an entity there. We can't say it's the same flame. It's, it's, it's a different flame. It's burning based on a new wick and new wax, new air being consumed, new oxygen being consumed. It's a completely different flame. And yet there is some relationship between the first flame and the second flame. And so one way we can look at our lives, it's like this continual unfolding of the next flame, the next flame, the next flame, the next flame, the next flame. And the understanding is, in the Theravada tradition in any case, um, that when at death, so this is in terms of rebirth, at death when consciousness goes out in this body, that it's just um, that that process, you know, there's, there's a kind of an energy behind that process, and it just simply re-arises in another body in the next moment. So it's not really a different process that happens, according to the Theravada tradition, um, between this life and between lives. It's just... Every moment, actually, is understood as the going out of consciousness and the re-arising of consciousness based on the kind of the energetic impulse of karma, karma being the kind of energetic part of the, the thing that m- keeps the process alive. So in, in this life, it's just this continual re-arising of consciousness based on karma, and at death, it's just the re-arising of consciousness in a new body. Now, how that works, I don't know. But that's my understanding of how... And, and that's not self. It's, it's again, it's, it's that... It's the energy of growth. The tree grows without 
a tree being doing the growing. It's just a natural process. And likewise, karma is a natural process that simply unfolds through our lives. So the, there's not a conflict between the understanding of karma and the understanding of not-self. The understanding of not-self is hard to get our minds around. That's definitely true. So I don't know if that... Just let that, let that sit. <laughs> and we may get more of that tomorrow. That was, that was a chunk of my not-self talk, but you know, I'll talk a little bit more about it tomorrow. <laughs> I'll take another one of these. Let's see. That was one of these. <laughs> Where are the rest of them? Over there. Ah, oh. oh, here this is a this is an interesting one. Um essentially about perception and feeling. Um an experience where it seemed as though there might have been just the perceptual experience or that just the experience of perception without feeling. There was just the perception of form and color uh, and no feeling. And the question was, was that neutral feeling? Or is it possible to experience perception without Vedana? Um, Again, this is this is my take on this. Um, so much of the mind is mysterious. Um, my take on it, on the teachings, let's say. Um, you know, the, the, um, the Buddha, well, actually, I think it was Shariputra, talked about, in the, in the canon, there's a, a discourse, and I'll read you a little bit of it in a moment, talked about how perception, feeling, and consciousness arise together. Um, and yet, we can, th- there, there are times when the mind is more looking through the lens of perception, Kind of perception is highlighted, and so feeling may not be so present in consciousness. That's one way it can seem that we are experiencing perception without feeling. Another way is the neutrality that essentially, w- in that kind of experience, when um, there is just form and color, no particular objects that one would. You know, so there's there's just form and color. There's not the flower, which we may have an emotional relationship to, the the idea of flower, just form and color. Um, that tends to be neutral, and so the again the mind being interested in the phenomenon of perception tends to obscure the the more neutral feeling tone. I'll read you this uh, little bit. Uh, I, I love this um, this little bit of the text. To me, it was helpful. 
So there have been a few few questions. This is a series of questions and answers. I actually I'll read I'll read these series because it it um So it starts with consciousness. It says, Consciousness is said, friend. With reference to what is consciousness said? It cognizes. It cognizes, friend. That's why consciousness is said. What does it cognizes? It cognizes this is pleasant. It cognizes this is unpleasant. It cognizes this is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Elsewhere in the suttas, by the way, it says, it cognizes, what does it cognize? It cognizes red, it cognizes blue. So, um, cognition happens at the sense bases. This one is talking about the sense base of the mind, it's cognizing at. Feeling is said, friend, with reference to what is feeling said. It feels, friend, that's why feeling is said. What does it feel? It feels pleasure, it feels pain, it feels neither pain nor pleasure. It feels, it feels, that's why feeling is said. So the distinction between consciousness and feeling is that essentially consciousness is recognizing. It's not the perception here. It's uh, the, the perception and, well, we'll get to that in a minute. I'm not going to try to distinguish between perception and consciousness here in this example. (laughs) Then it goes on. Perception is said with reference to what is perception said. It perceives, it perceives, friend. That is why perception is said. What does it perceive? It perceives blue, it perceives yellow, it perceives red, it perceives white. It perceives, it perceives, that's why perception is said. And so you may have noticed that there's not necessarily clarity between the three. <laughs> you know, consciousness, it, it, uh, consciousness recognizes, it says, it cognizes, it's pl- this is pleasant, it cognizes, this is painful. And elsewhere it says, it cognizes, this is red, this is blue, this is yellow. And the example, this is perception. What does it perceive? It perceives red, it perceives blue, it perceives yellow. So what's the distinction? That's the very next question he asks. <laughs> it says, okay. <laughs> so, feeling perception and consciousness, friend, are these states conjoined or disjoined? And is it possible to separate each of these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them? And Shariputra answers, These states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them. For what one feels, that one perceives. And what one perceives, that one cognizes. That's why these states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the others to describe the difference between them. Because you saw that there was essentially reference to the others in the description of each. So I look at it as being perception, feeling, and consciousness as being kind of the... Well, it is a result of karma. Uh, What we perceive, what we feel, what we cognize... 
is a result of our karma. Not itself productive of karma, what we feel, what we perceive, what we cognize. Now, our reaction to that is productive of karma. But it's kind of like, to me, I, I look at those three together as being like kind of the bare experience that comes into our senses. Bare with the uh, understanding or caveat that it is filtered through previous uh, karma. (laughs) And so we are taking certain things in, not others, orienting towards certain feelings, not others. But that bare kind of experience coming in we can highlight or recognize the knowing aspect of that experience. We can highlight or recognize the feeling aspect of that experience or the perceiving aspect of experience. But my understanding is they are all arising together. So that's my thoughts on that one. I think, well, I'll I'll leave it there. (laughs) Any other questions from the room? Uh, and I would kind of say consciousness is the 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 Honeyball Sutta that I read earlier is is that the consciousness um, yeah consciousness meets experience. I mean the way you described it is is almost uh, backwards from the way I'm used to hearing it. That consciousness meets experience and feeling and perception come with it. So there's already the cognizing when the blue is known. There's already the cognizing when the feeling is known. So they're there together. And, you know, it's, it, it, there's these moments. There's perception, feeling, consciousness. There's the recognition of blue ball in one moment. And then there's the next moment of perception, feeling, consciousness that is informed by our response to blue ball. Liking, wanting my blue ball. The next moment of sense experience comes into being based on that karma of that response or our attitudes, opinions, views, beliefs, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, my understanding is that, that it's just like these three uh, coming together each moment. Yes. <laughs> it is definitely possible. Um, um, so, you know. I'm, I'm noticing that, that I, I don't like um, cars driving and all those kind of things. And I'm spending a lot of time outside. And it's becoming actually pretty neutral. So it's, 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 so it's a change of Yes, and the um, um, you know that 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 may be a result of you know the fact that the mind is settled, 
is less reactive, you know, just in general, the, the, um, the underlying tendency towards not liking that is weakened. Um, you know, the, the, the habitual tendencies, the habitual patterns, um, they're, they're pretty deeply ingrained. Um, some of them are really deeply ingrained. I mean, like aversive tendency, for example. You know, like I said the other day, I tend to be very strongly in that mode that that's kind of what m- this mind has practiced a lot of is aversion. So that's kind of how it tends to meet the world. Um, there's been a huge shifting around that particular set of patterns and individual patterns within that aversion, self-hatred, for example. You know, that was a very common habit in this mind and body. Um, Largely not there anymore. Little, Little blips of it that come and go, but they're you know, the, the the delusion around it, the belief in it having any meaning, the thoughts still come up, but the, the belief in it seems to pretty much be gone. Um, so that kind of uh, shift of deeper patterns is possible through the practice. And in my experience, it comes just through this very kind of practice. The willingness to meet what's happening the mind begins to understand the consequences. The mind looked at self-hatred enough to really see the uh, not-self nature of it, the suffering nature of it. I mean, it's amazing to me how the mind could have believed self-hatred was in any way helpful. (laughs) But it did and believed it was helpful somehow. Um, So, you know, the, the seeing of the uh, the pattern over and over again, the mind began to unwind and see through it. Definitely possible that those habitual habits, tendencies can go away. Absolutely. And we don't have time, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, yes. <laughs> We need to stop. So given that I've done a little bit of the not-self talk today, um, we'll see. Maybe we can do some more questions tomorrow after a a shorter talk. Let's just sit for a couple minutes. And you're welcome to continue as long as you wish. (laughs) 